From the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. In this day of, of Instagram, when everyone is a photographer and everyone publishes, what is publishing and what is worth publishing? What do people react to most and what makes them want to share? Our guest today is Sarah Quinn. Sarah is a design and journalism consultant and researcher and holds the R.M. Seaton Endowed Chair at Kansas State University. She's also the president of the Society for News Design and an affiliate faculty member for the Pointer Institute, where she taught full-time for more than a decade. Her large-scale eye-tracking research for Pointer and other organizations on newspaper, tablet, and online reading habits helps journalists determine the best forms for storytelling. It's been presented in newsrooms, conferences, and at universities around the world. Her most recent study is eye-tracking photojournalism for the National Press Photographers Association. Sarah spent nearly 20 years working in newspaper newsrooms, including the Sarasota Herald Tribune in Florida and her hometown newspaper, the Wichita Eagle in Kansas. Sarah Quinn, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the work you've done. First, you you were part of a book through the Pointer Institute on eye-tracking the news, and you've also done some other eye-tracking studies on photojournalism as well. Can you tell us a little bit about those eye-tracking studies and just what they were and and how they came about? Sure. Um, I've worked on four major projects on eye-tracking, kind of seeing how people engage with the news. Um, across platforms. And the Pointer Institute started a lot of eye tracking in 1990, um, looking at how people read the news in broadsheet format. So uh, Dr. Mario Garcia and Dr. Peggy Stark did some of the very first studies looking at media. And then when I joined the Pointer Institute in 2003, um, we continued those studies uh, in a big way. And we wanted to see how people read in print and how that differed from reading online. So that was a major study in 2007 and we brought in 800 readers all across the U.S. and we compared how they looked at regularly published materials at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the Rocky Mountain News, which is no longer around unfortunately, um, the Philadelphia Daily News and the St. Pete Times. So we were comparing um, tabloid and broadsheet format and how people read in print and then also how they read online in that same study. So they would come in and we would fit them with these very simple goggles Mm -hmm. and um, just watch them as they read um, through the publication. And then we did some other adjacent tests at the same time to see um, what they remembered and what they understood from what they had read. So what brought about these studies? I mean, so you said they've been doing it for a long time, since about 1990. What was the impulse behind these? Well, you know, there are a lot of things that we would assume that we knew about how design affected presentation of the news and comprehension. But it's only when you really start to look at it under a microscope that you can see what do people look at first and does hierarchy matter and do people read captions and does reading a caption help you understand what you've read and and, and what you remember. And so it, it really is like with any research, you have to collect that data and really start to analyze it. Um, and the first studies, there was quite a distance between the original studies and the subsequent look. And in that time, of course, you know, 
media changes. It's probably changing as we sit in here right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the subsequent studies that I participated in um, or that I directed had to do with tablets and how people engage and tap on the news, what they wanted to see, and if an interactive helped them to understand what they had looked at. And then for the uh, National Press Photographers Association, you know, the question was, in this day of, of Instagram, when everyone is a photographer and everyone publishes, what is publishing and what is worth publishing? What do people react to most and what makes them want to share? Mm-hmm. And, and do people see a difference between work that is created by a professional or by their next-door neighbor. Hmm. And so that study, um, we started with eye-tracking gear and had really interesting conversations with people about how they wanted to interact with photography. So so yeah, let's talk about some of the things you found. I, I, this is fascinating. So even going back to the original study, well, your original study, in two, which was published in 2007, about 2007 print my, and online. My particular and study. And then you did another one, at least one more, but this you were just talking about with photojournalism, essentially, right? So let's talk about some of the things you found that that were surprising or even maybe not surprising. Yeah, in, in the first study, um, as we sat down to say, do people read more or less in print or online? Um, At the time we were doing it, we didn't know. We sort of thought we knew. But I was able to watch basically hundreds of hours of people engaging with media. And at the time, um, it seemed quite surprising. But people were reading a higher volume of text online than they did in print. Mm. And that was true regardless of the length of the story that they chose. But it, you know, it was quite surprising to me. Why do you think that is? I'm, I mean, I think that, you know, we were comparing broadsheet and uh, tabloid formats in print, and quite often there will be a jump in a story. There will be other things that draw their attention. You know, you might open up a lengthy story and think, oh, I need a cup of coffee before I finish this. Part of it is because you see the entire volume of the story ahead of you. Mm-hmm. We're online, you may or may not know how much is yet to come. And so there's more of a focused reading engagement with what is right in front of them on the screen. It might be 40 lines of text. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I'll, although I do find myself sometimes online scrolling down just to see how much I'm, I'm in for. Right. Right. And then right. it ends up with that sort of TLDR thing like, okay, this is too long. I'm not going to go. But you're right. I mean, I can see that. Whereas if you see the whole thing in front of you, you're like, okay, I, I can't do this right now, or that jump sometimes throws you. Um, but you're right. That, that, I hadn't thought about it that way because I tend to think about um, fatigue when I'm on a screen. Right. I would, I, my, my hypothesis would be, oh, people are probably reading less online because it's more distracting. There's more things going on. But it sounds like that's the opposite. Um, it, it, it depends, of course, on the design. It depends on your device, just as it depends on the quality of the design in a print publication. So there are so many things as a designer that we can do to make sure that we put in a subhead that gives people a pause or a place to rest and gives them a chance to say, oh, I understand what I've just you know, read and this is what's to come. So design is so important. And design includes the device. It, it includes everything about the way you tease a newscast. You know, we can take this into broadcast as well and even into radio because 
I maintain that radio is one of the most visual mediums that we have. Why is that? Um, because your brain allows you to, you know, take in what you've heard and make a picture of it. Mm-hmm. And so design is, um, is so pivotal, and I think it's not just about color and typography, although those things are really crucial, but it's about all of the elements. So visual journalism is more what we're talking about. Yeah. So you found people were, were engaging more at more length with maybe online stuff. What other things did you find in terms of, I don't know, what people valued or the way they were moving through papers? Um, you know, anything that you encounter, whether it's a billboard or the side of a bus or the cover of a book or a magazine or in any design, um, the eye is drawn first to the dominant element, um, regardless of where it's positioned on that plane. So there's a, a hierarchy involved, and things that are the largest headline, the largest image, get the primary attention. And so, uh, you know, there have been some things that people taught over and over. Oh, things people read in an inverted Z pattern, and that's not true at all. <laughs> um, they're drawn to something that is given hierarchy and prominence. So it's important to have a large headline or image, otherwise the eye bounces back and forth between things that are of the same size. Yeah. So we have to create that um, that level of importance for someone with design. People are really drawn to photographs of real people doing things in real time, and they tend to almost, they'll, they might notice, but they'll disregard a static image. So there could be um, a fantastic environmental portrait of someone who is aware of the camera and it might get attention, but it is still a static image because someone is aware of the photograph. A mugshot is kind of a transactional piece of information. You see someone's age and gender and some information, but they will always spend more um, attention or they'll be drawn to an image of somebody sneezing or somebody you know, uh, reacting with an emotion. Hmm. So when it comes to images, people want... Uh, genuine moments that are captured in real time. It makes me think of uh, <laughs> some of the work that's been done about iconic photos. Mm-hmm. And, and as I think about some of those, and especially those coming out of Vietnam, for instance, um, a lot of those images that came out of that era, you know, it strikes me as that those are all very in-the-moment, action-based photos. Do you think that has something to do with the their status as sort of iconic photos? The fact that they are... Um, so memorable and people can identify with them. A a still photograph, a photograph that is, you know, capturing emotion, something has clearly happened just before and something will happen just after and we are not privy to that. But there's something about capturing that moment that makes it special. Just as video offers opportunities in many different ways to capture our attention and to engage, still photography has that moment in time that makes it, you know, very special. And we tend to, um, oh, there's a a Harvard study that looks at, it's a Harvard engineering study that tells us that an image helps us to understand. So you might leaf through a book, you know, at a fraction of a second. And if you saw several maps, you would have that as a major takeaway that, oh, there was something of, you know, geography and place. And so that image communicates so quickly. And so the form tends to matter. And the same is very much true with photography. 
one of the questions that arises when I when I start talking about this is you as you you started talking about the way that in which we start to learn about what draws people's attention and where they'll place emphasis. So the issues, a couple of issues come up. One is trust in information and how do people, does that affect their level of trust? And then the other question, of course, then becomes an ethical question of the, the, the ethics of design and how you're essentially, at least in part, guiding people's attention, knowing what we know. Um, so maybe we can talk about trust first of all. Have you find anything about trust in the way people engage with information through design? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm a recent president at the Society for News Design, and we've held workshops um, for the last 40 years all over the world thinking about news in particular. And one of the, the events that we had last year was designing for trust, truth and trust in media. And <clears throat> as we think as professionals, and in an age when people start to question things, we held some focus groups and we got people together in a room to say, what is it about media and those visual cues that leads us to trust? And oftentimes it's transparency, it is a way to link to original source materials, it is understanding who this is coming from. So we were looking at um, what can we recommend to news organizations or anyone as you're presenting the news, particularly in a digital form, that can, you know, just encourage people that you're a valid source. And oftentimes it is, you know, the simplicity of putting in original source material or where it's come from. And we can't ever forget to, you know, to do that. Um, design is not about decoration. Design is content and design is journalism. And it has to be accurate. It has to be more accurate sometimes even in a visual form. And here's my example. And mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make any rash statements here, but let's say we heard um, a car accident outside. You and I might run out and see what happened. We could talk to three or four people and get some comments. And we see that there is a fire hydrant and water is spraying out of it and the car seems to have hit it. We could definitely report on that. Um, either for audio or we could report on it, you know, for a written print story. If we wanted to make a graphic of that, though, we couldn't guess at what angle that car hit. We would have to try to figure out, you know, what was the speed as it was going around the corner? Did it hit the, you know, front right fender? You know, what was the angle of the trajectory of the car? Anytime you're going to put things down in a visual Reportage, it has to be really accurate. That's that's fascinating. I'm, I, I'm, it got me thinking initially about a very personal thing that happened to me, and I don't mean to tell too many stories here, but I was in a car accident about a year and a half ago, a pretty serious one, and I, of course I had no idea what had happened. I mean, I knew what had happened, but then I was presented with a visual of it, a drawing of how it happened, and it didn't really align with my memory as much as I thought it would, but this I was able to also make sense of, okay, that's why, A, I didn't die, and B, uh, that's why the back of the car was torn off in the way it was, and that kind of thing. But I had, you know, in the moment, it was just chaos. But this, and you're right, so that that's an interesting way to, to think about accuracy, that this actually gives some real specificity to this. Why don't we take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of my interview with Sarah Quinn. 
The amount of ethical questions we can ask ourselves is overwhelming. But the thing is, everybody wrestles with questions about ethics. Some are easy to figure out. Should I murder someone? No, you shouldn't. But there are other questions that are more difficult to answer. I'm Andy Cullison, the host of Examining Ethics, director of the Prindle Institute for Ethics, and professor of philosophy. I'm Christian Weishart, a recovering art historian and stranger to the field of ethics. And I'm Sandra Burton, have no advanced degrees, but I did get an A- in Intro to Philosophy. We're an expert and two very non-experts, wrestling our way through difficult ethical questions. But examining ethics isn't in the business of answering questions for you. We are in the business of giving our listeners an arsenal of tools. Tools that help answer the ethical questions we face all the time. Join us each month for discussions about many of the ethical questions, large and small, that we face in our everyday lives. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us at examiningethics.org. Expert or not, we'll give you something to wrestle with. Welcome back to Modern Media. We're here talking today with journalist and news designer Sarah Quinn. We're in an age where people are less inclined to trust images because we know exactly what can be done and how easy it is to manipulate. And how do you how do you deal with that in your studies or in your work? You know, particularly a photograph that might have been manipulated. I think uh, as a professional journalist, we have to consider the source. And if something is sent to us, it is incumbent upon us to really say, um, you know, let's look at the metadata in this photograph and see if we can see, is there a GPS, is there a, a date or time? Because oftentimes those digital files, you know, record that information. You can take a look at something if you have a question about it um, to compare the pixels and see if something has been manipulated. So there are, you know, some ways to do a little science and detective work to say, what's the source of this? Um, definitely to make a call and not just to um, to publish something because it's crossed our paths. Um, and I think that's a lot like social media. And sometimes, you know, how quickly will we retweet something or share something before we know it's true? And if we are known to be a journalist, you know, like, what do we need to do to kind of verify that? Because we're, we're giving a little more credence to it just by the fact that we're sharing it. So it, it, you're so right that this is a time when we have to bring critical thinking to the forefront. We just had, um, in fact, I just, the earlier podcast I just did uh, a couple weeks ago with Craig Silverman from BuzzFeed, who does all the work on fake news. And he actually did a workshop here on verification and went through some of that. Um, metadata work that they do. And then there were some jaws that dropped in the room, I think, because A, you know, how cool is it, is it that we can do this? And B, oh my goodness, this is the amount of information I'm putting out every time I take a picture. Mm -hmm. People can figure out really where I was, if this is a real picture. Um, it's fascinating stuff. It leads me to another question, though, which is some of the challenges uh, maybe for, um, for design. But I also... Before I do that, I want to pick up on the idea of sharing. Did you find anything about what makes people share images? What what drives them to do that versus over other images? I, I did. Um, I did this study for the National Press Photographers Association up in Minneapolis, and it was such a gratifying experience. So I, I invited about 80 people. I used the materials from about 60 for the study. And 
I watched them as they looked through 200 images, and 100 of the images had been taken by professional photographers, people trained and working as journalists, and 100 had also been published, but they were community uh, contributed materials. And so I had people look through them and I recorded the uh, movements of their eye as they looked at a photograph. I was able to see whether or not they read a caption, if they went back and forth between the caption and the image, what length of time they spent on an image, if they looked at the background or if they concentrated on faces. Um, and I, in, in painstaking detail, recorded like every fraction of a second to see what they looked at. And, and that was really um, interesting. And so now I feel like that has helped me predict what people look at first. And they are drawn to um, emotion and they're drawn to relationships between people in the photograph. Is it an umpire who's calling somebody out at home base? Um, you know, are they making eye contact? But then after I um, gathered that material, I also talked to the people about what they remembered about what they'd looked at, which of the photographs stood out most, what they wanted to know more about, whether or not they thought the source of the photograph was a trained photographer or not, and if that mattered. And so part of the thing I loved about that so much was I spent about 90 minutes with each person saying, you know, oh, you liked that photograph most. That was one that you listed that you remembered. What was it about it that you remembered? And in their own words, then, I was able to capture some of the um, idea if they would share that photograph. Like every photo that they looked at, I wanted them to rate on a scale of one to five the likelihood that they might share it. Hmm. And so it was um, <clears throat> part of the data that I collected. But the, my major takeaway was that people were impressed with the quality of the photograph, the sharpness of the photograph, but I would say primarily with the content. Oh. And they would say, um, <clears throat> that's a scene I would never ordinarily have seen. I, I would not have um, been privy to that accident or that particular perspective, that photograph of the Queen of England. You know, mm -hmm. I would never get that close to it. And some of the things that were most memorable to me were when we talked about who they followed on Instagram whether or not they would share something, if they ever did share things. And these were not um, journalists at all. They were um, flight attendants, they were contractors, they were physicians, they mm -hmm. were people from other walks of life. And um, one gentleman stands out most, and he said, oh yes, I follow a lot of people on Instagram. And I said, who do you follow and why? And he said, well, they, they take me places I can't see. And he said, um, he confided in me that, he said, my wife is ill. We don't travel, and we won't be traveling. Mm -hmm. I follow people because they take me places that I can't go, and I like the way they see the world. And that seems to be a message for, I mean, that seems to be a good lesson for photojournalists. And, you know, what, so one of the questions I have then, did, was there a sense of, did it make a difference whether they perceived or whether they knew this was a professional photographer or? It didn't matter. Um, however, people spent uh, longer periods of time with well-composed, well-lit, interesting mm -hmm. photographs. And of all of the photographs in the study, I was able to see which was which. And people spent much more time with the professional images. 
Okay. They were much more likely to remember the professional images. They had a stronger emotional connection. They read captions that were highly developed. Um, and so it, it all bore out that the higher quality <laughs> yeah. um, happened to come from, and there were 200 images, all of which had been published, but people spent less time with the lower quality images. That's interesting. I, 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 the reason I ask that is because we're, it's pretty clear we're entering a phase in journalism where newspapers are starting to uh, shed not only copy editors, but also photographers for efficiency's sake. And I can see the photographers, I can understand the rationale there as much as I disagree with it, that everybody's got an iPhone, everybody's a reporter. But there, as you're saying, there's something about the the quality of images the that trained photojournalists can bring to a paper that, that is essentially that is an investment papers maybe want to make in terms of engagement with their materials. Virtually everyone can sit down to a keyboard and write something, but does that mean that the quality of the writing is going to be even? No, it's not. And, you know, you're going to like some written word better than others and some video better than others, and it is the quality of the work that people respond to. And what you're referring to was the impetus for this study. Um, At the time that we decided to do this, several major newspapers decided to get rid of their entire photo staffs. Hmm. And it was so disheartening. And, you know, the question was from the National Press Photographers Association, what in the world is this about? And so the study really bolsters the fact that people respond to quality. And just as not every photographer is equally skilled at capturing the moments at a football game. (laughs) You know, some people have perfect focus and some people are really able to follow it. The quality of the work really matters, Mm -hmm. just like the quality of writing. Yeah. You know, and I I think about it, yeah, in terms of writing, in terms of music, I mean, I can play the notes. That doesn't mean I'm good at it. That doesn't mean I get the emotion of it. That doesn't mean someone's going to listen to me play and go, wow, you know, I really want to hear more of you. They'll probably say, well, that was correct. And, you know, you played all the notes. Good for you. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Um, so, so that leads me to the, you know, so what are the challenges for design? I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about the challenges for newspapers generally, but what are the challenges for design these days when, you know, papers are starting to move more and more online. Uh, print editions are starting to sort of fall away a little bit. Um, and of course, the world of online design is a different world than print design, because you're not only designing for, you're designing for multiple screens, right? What are the big challenges? Well, within news organizations, um, whether it's broadcast or print, there's no such thing as just broadcast or just print. So everything has a digital presence, and radio stations have a digital presence. And so there is design related to, you know, to everything that we do. When it comes to journalism, um, everything is visual. Um, a, a good friend of mine is at Minnesota Public Radio, and she's the director of visuals, and they do remarkable work. So it, it needs to be present in so many different forms. And, and you're right, it has to be on your brand of cell phone and my brand of cell phone and the particular iPad or digital device that I have and a desktop. So it is uh, much more complex than it used to be. The publications that um, 
that continue to print, and I believe in print and good, strong, well-designed print resources are diminished just as with photojournalists, but it, the product still needs to be put out. And quite often the business decisions are to make things more templated. So I think perhaps we're seeing a little less love of conceptual thinking to storytelling in print just because the, you know, the people aren't there to do it. So we're seeing more templated work, and that kind of mimics what we see online. Um, because a website is basically a machine that sucks in information and puts it out in certain formats and translates it to all these different devices, but it all has to be designed. So one of the things I love most about visual journalism is the idea of illustration and conceptual thinking and collections of um, photography and you know, covering something in, in these grand ways. I think that we're seeing a little bit less of that. And, and it has to do with staffing. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not just in the United States, but it's around the world. So there's still some fabulous work that's being done, and I just think we have to, you know, really revel in that. Yeah, it's interesting to me because at the same time, I feel like, you know, this is an opportunity. While, while the printed page, while that actual physical paper is starting to fall away a bit, you know, this is an age where we can consume information in more detail than ever before. And, you know, the, the ability to tell a story with graphics, with information, with data, data analysis is greater than ever. And yet at the same time you're saying there's also this push to these sort of templated formats when really, if you really want to stand out, doing some great conceptual work, some great visual work, will make a story even, even better. The opportunities are even more diverse because you can add in audio elements and polling and interactivity. Um, uh, you can add in, you know, virtual reality and devices that see things in a 360 format. And so it, it's, um, it's changing, just as we said at the beginning, like every day, every minute. And it's pr a pretty exciting time to be a journalist and to be a visual journalist, especially. Um, it just, it's, it's becoming more and more diverse in the ways to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And some of it is um, the formats that we use. So a, an example, I like to think about social media visuals and things that can be created for Twitter that allow you to interact with Twitter and maybe, you know, vote on a certain topic and you see it represented. Or you sit down to Facebook. Here's an example. Maybe you're waiting to pick up your little brother or sister at a tennis match or something, and you're sitting there, you want to be quiet, you go to Facebook, and the format of Facebook is that it doesn't autoplay video, or, or I'm sorry, the audio on video, but it might autoplay video. So suddenly that's an interesting constraint. It's like we can communicate with videos that have text on them. So I call those tiny docs. So it might work with or without the audio, but we have to figure out ways to communicate with this, you know, short video, maybe it's two minutes at the most, but combining all these different elements. So the opportunities are there and they just kind of keep evolving. So what would you suggest to students and people wanting to go into this area or, you know, what, what's, the, what's the advice you would give somebody, a young person at a, at a college? Like, like the one we're sitting at. <laughs> I would say always be prepared. People have asked me, 
what's the best camera? And I kind of want to just, you know, be sarcastic, but, but truthful at the same time. It's whatever you have with you that you know how to use. The best camera, if something, you know, if there's a plane crash, it's whatever you have that is charged up <laughs> and that you know how to use and that you know how to publish with as quickly as possible. And that might be live tweeting something. That might be, you know, transmitting a, an image from your phone or a piece of video. So I think um, be as prepared as possible and be as aware of what's around you as possible. If you go to cover an event and somebody says, um, oh, I shouldn't show you this, but you darn well better get a picture of it. <laughs> so while I, I'm strong, a strong proponent of expertise in a lot of areas, and we need strong illustrators just as we need strong reporters and photographers and videographers, try to be prepared to gather as many things as you possibly can. And, um, and think of all the different avenues on which you can publish um, and get it out there. So that's one thing. Another little silly piece of advice is that just about anything that you want to know how to do is Googleable. And they, you know, everybody knows that. I mean, that's our first inclination. I don't know how to format this piece of video. You can type it into whatever search engine you have. So don't be afraid and just know that there are tutorials out there and you just need to go after it. Well, and, and that's, that's funny. I, I was actually just recently uh, doing some work on uh, After Effects. I needed to learn how to use After Effects. And of course, I went online to find this question out. Now, the, the challenge was finding the tutorial that actually was a good tutorial that made sense. There's lots of them out there. Right. But much like design issues, you know, some of them are terrible tutorials. They're just moving so fast. They're not explaining anything. They're just that's showing true. you how they know how to do it. I finally did land on one that I was able to go through about 20 times, slowly, piece by piece, and figure it out, and this person's method was fantastic. But it was in some ways the design of his tutorial that allowed me to learn this thing, because other people had the answers too, but I could not follow it. Be a discerning Googler. <laughs> <laughs> but it does make me think about the, the importance, again, of presentation, mm -hmm. right? It's not only just, do you know the story? Can you get the information out there? But how are you presenting it? I mean, it seems obvious in some ways, but, and I think with design, I mean, I'll be honest with you, when I would hear about design in the paper, my thought was, oh, you're the one making the ads, right? Or you're the one, you know, putting things in different places. I had never thought about the idea that, well, no, this is actually about creating hierarchies of information. This is about emphasizing things. This is about guiding readers in different ways and getting the most interaction out of it. To me, it always struck me as, oh, these are the graphic designers who come and make the visuals because we need someone to do that. And I think, I think that leads me to my other little piece of advice, and that is to learn to synthesize complex things. And the best way to present something is the most approachable way. And so quite often it is like, you know, distill this complex idea into a visual form, into something that people can understand in three steps or whatever that is. And that, that's true whether it is design or an informational graphic or a video. So if you are able to make sense of things in a fairly smart, concise way, chances are you have the potential to be a good designer. And 
and know that that's just part of it. You have to be a good uh, a good study. You have to be a good student, and and journalism in in general is you're going to school for life. Like every new thing that you have to go cover, you're constantly learning. Maybe learn to do that in a visual way and present it on whatever form is there. That's maybe the task. Well, Sarah Quinn, thank you so much for being here. This has been fascinating. This is great. Thanks for having me on. And that'll do it for another installment of Modern Media. Our guest today was Sarah Quinn, a design and journalism consultant and researcher. You can find out more about Sarah's work at her website, www.modernmediapodcast.org. Modern Media is a production of the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. Our production coordinators are Meredith Breda, Jay Klein, and Laurel Tilton. Our web editor is Chris Newton. You can subscribe to Modern Media on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Until next time, this is JNP for Modern Media.